This week's guest on The Skin We Are In is Erjean Kong, violinist and associate professor at the University of Arkansas. During our conversation, Erjean discusses the importance of young women seeing other women achieve success in their field. It's very inspiring because I think it would be very tempting to say, this person understands my struggle. This person made it work. I think it I think that means it can work for me too. This is The Skin We Are In, and I'm Jennifer Dean. The Skin We Are In is a website and podcast dedicated to telling women's stories with the goal of revealing how women both define and embody what it means to be a woman today. My guest, Erjean Kong, is a violinist and associate professor at the University of Arkansas. Erjean is also a co-founder of the Summer Chamber Music Festival in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and former concertmaster of the Arkansas Philharmonic. Before joining the University of Arkansas, Erjean taught at the Neighborhood Music School in New Haven, Connecticut. Her students have gained admission to some of the top music schools in the country, including the New England Conservatory and the Peabody Conservatory at Johns Hopkins University. Erjean, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm glad to have you today. I'm really excited about our conversation. Me too. So my first question is, you're currently at the University of Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And as someone who also found herself in Arkansas at one point in my life, um, and it wasn't a place I planned on ending up, I'm always curious to hear how others end up there. So what was your path that brought you to Arkansas? I was attending grad school, finishing up my graduate work in Chicago. And it's sort of a boring path, actually. Um, Violin performance is such a specific field that... Although there are many opportunities to create a career, um, I think in classical music, we still basically fall into two paths, which is a career based mostly around teaching um, or performing. Um, And of course, the two go hand in hand. So what I mean by that is, are you mostly, for example, a an orchestral, an orchestral player who teaches lessons when not in rehearsals, or are you more of a full-time teacher that also performs um, uh, through the university, through the community? So that was sort of my thinking when I was nearing the end of my coursework, wondering what options and opportunities might be there. Um, and so I started looking um, at college vacancies and also taking orchestral auditions, thinking I was equally attracted to both options. uh, And of course, both have their own challenges. So long story short, I was looking at these two options thinking, well, since I'm in love with both of them and I really don't have a clear preference between the two, maybe I'll just see where I have better luck. And the University of Arkansas's violin position opened up quite late. I went through the process and was it was my first job. And of course, I'm, I'm still here and very happy. How long have you been at the University of Arkansas now? And this will be the beginning of my 10th year. Oh, so quite a while. Yes. How, yes. how has your experience changed from the beginning to now? Well, I think there are at least two aspects for me. I think the first is, because it was my first university job, just learning what it means to 
to teach at a university. And I guess the second would be learning to make a life in Arkansas. Um, I did not have any friends or colleagues um, or family in this area. And so it was a bit isolating in the beginning and I wasn't quite sure. I had never made a move that was for a job where I had no prior contacts. So that was um, an interesting journey for sure. So within the 10 years, I think I found um, that it was actually easier than I had imagined to make friends. Um, and of course, it helps that a lot of the uh, folks who are at the university are transplants themselves. Um, they are attracted to the job. Um, and then we are able to create a community uh, very easily through our department. And I think slowly I sort of radiated outward and was able to explore the community and, and realize that there was a great love and a great love for music and a great openness to develop friendships. In terms of the job, I think one of the things that a lot of teachers will experience is that despite maybe on a job description, the, the duties or the expected duties stay the same uh, how that manifests and, of course, how that's implemented and how that's explored with students and how that's expressed in a department constantly changes. So it's been interesting for me to, to grow within myself, but also grow, I think, together within a department. Uh, so it's, it's been sort of a series of shifting circles, I feel, um, sort of a personal journey, learning to make a life in an unfamiliar geographical area and, of course, enjoying sort of the, the ride of um, development in a school that's also, I think, ambitious to grow and develop. I like how you mentioned, you know, integrating yourself into a new place. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking, I remember a lot of my experiences when we moved to Arkansas. It was the first place um, I had moved as an adult where I didn't have some sort of connection mm -hmm. and it was definitely a new experience for me. And I think having the university there was the one thing that saved us in a way, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it was easy once you get involved, um, with the university, me in grad school and my husband working there, it helped to create this sense of community. Absolutely. And so much of it is also what one brings, um, I'm extremely introverted and I'm an only child and my parents are also introverts, I would say. And so an introvert has given them this instrument that requires a lot of long solitary hours in a practice room. Um, I think it makes sense that I was able to connect with it, but at the same time, trying to be in a position where I was expected to often initiate conversations, whether it be with students or with newcomers to introduce myself. I think it was an added challenge for me. It was definitely more stressful than exciting. The The newness was something that I think was a personal experiment to see if I could, if I could learn to enjoy that process. Well, I think you've been extremely successful. One of the things that I remember was your performances at the Summer Chamber Music Festival, an, mm -hmm. a, an event that you co-founded. Mm -hmm. And I've always wanted to know, how did this wonderful idea come to fruition? Uh, my cello colleague, who um, has since retired, he and I were having a conversation. And my first year at University of Arkansas, 
he asked me, what are your plans for the summer? Since um, our summers are quite long, three months. And uh, I, I always had planned on, or I'd always become accustomed to attending summer festivals where there is sort of intense music making and meeting of new people and new configurations of ensembles. And a lot of uh, folks sort of uh, go on summer vacation, which makes sense. But I sort of thought, well, I, I really don't know what I'm going to do this summer. So I, I went to a festival in Maine, and I was mentioning that to my colleague. And uh, he was saying, well, what are, you, what are your living accommodations? And just sort of kind of cut and dry practical um, questions. And he sort of said, well, aren't you going to miss sort of the comforts of, of your own place? And I sort of thought, well, yeah, I, I think I will, because all of these musicians were housed in semi-dorm facilities. And so he basically said at the end of the conversation, let me ask you if hypothetically there were a similar chamber festival here, would you, would you stay in the summers? And I, and I said, definitely. Um, for me, it's not necessarily the going away, although that can be exciting, and it wasn't necessarily something very specific to this particular festival. It was just the opportunity to create music. And so he and I sort of thought, well, what would logistically need to happen to make a summer festival like that happen here? And he and I uh, both share a deep love for string chamber music, um, all chamber music, of course, but being string players, I think uh, I never felt like I had enough time. I mean, maybe it's just like English majors. There's never enough time to read all the books you want. <laughs> um, there's never enough time for me to really explore all the string literature that's out there. Um, for as much schooling as I had, it's there's just so much literature. And of course, there's great literature that's being composed today. So um, there's never enough time. So the summers are great for that reason. And so that was the beginning of our conversation that inspired us to create a festival and uh, it's been it's been really wonderful. I it's one of the things I really look forward to in the summer. It was one of the things that I really looked forward to myself when I lived in Fayetteville, mm. and I was always really captivated by your performances. And I I would always leave thinking, you know, your music resonates not only on its own, but also as this integral member of a group that is so in sync with one another that it almost feels like one misplaced note would mm -hmm. somehow result in spontaneous combustion, you know, <laughs> right in front of the audience's eyes. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to know if that's what I'm thinking, what's going through your mind mm -hmm. during these performances? For me, I would say there's always a split brain, I think, for a performer and I would say with any creative artist, I suppose, where we go through such technical training and to build something up to a structure that is fulfilling and acceptable to one's standards, there, there needs to be a high degree of sort of detached analysis. And mm. by the detachment, I mean, it's sort of like you see yourself in the third person and critique X, Y, and Z and say, this needs to be sharper, flatter, tighter, you know, whatever the parameters may be. And that can be a process that's emotionally exhausting because it's frustrating, obviously, when things don't really come together easily. But it also requires a detachment that I think is 
antithetical to why we perform um, and or what the meaning of a performance really is um, to evoke that kind of emotion. And so that part of my brain still has to operate on some level um, in a performance. And that's something that is something to negotiate every time. It's great when you feel like somehow that that critical brain can be turned off and everything is flowing um, in a way that's natural and there isn't the, um, the dialogue that's going on. But that, that part of the brain always needs to be there, especially since there are always weird situations that come up in performances. It may be anything from something external, like someone is taking a really long time to unwrap the, the cough drop. Uh, and so they think that unwrapping it really slowly will be less disruptive. Um, or programs, of course, dropping um, the edge of the paper on a, on a hard surface sometimes can really resonate in a concert hall and may come at the most inconvenient times for audience or performer. Uh, and, and to be prepared that something like that will always happen um, versus, of course, also on stage. Um, there are always things that happen where you may not even anticipate it. You know, you're, you're reading along and maybe you look up for a second to communicate a visual cue with your partner and you look back down and suddenly somehow you've lost your place, even though this is the same music, everything is where it should be. Uh, and for a moment, things get blurry or, I mean, it's things that wouldn't have been planned. Um, so rather than sort of making specific contingency plans, it's more this general flexibility of knowing that going into it, it's going to be an imperfect performance somehow, somewhere in unexpected ways and to be flexible enough, uh, to say, well, I've what am I going to do here? And so I guess that's not only a critical brain, but maybe it's also sort of a practical contingency planning kind of brain that's spontaneous. Um, so there's always that kind of, I guess, mechanical side. Um, but the other side that, of course, I really, really enjoy and hope to really convey prominently with audiences is just the emotion of the music and to effectively conjure a feeling that is specific but universal. Someone once jokingly said that 99.9% of all pop music these days really meditate on this idea of love. I would say classical music is the same um, as structured and as much training as musicians go through. Uh, you can have sort of the manic manifestations of love, the tragic manifestations of love, the sweet nostalgic manifestations of love. To me, there's such specificity, even if you say this piece to me reflects some aspect of a blossoming honeymoon phase relationship or perhaps the wise sort of uh, musings of a sage who has experienced love gained and lost. And to me, I'm always interested to explore, I guess, the specificities of the emotions that I go through and to, through my own lens, since I consider myself an interpretive artist, to put a little bit of my own interpretive spin on what I know, I guess, from biographies and notes and, I guess, traditional performance practice, the, the way the piece um, is expected, I suppose, to, to be interpreted, and to play also with what I feel I'm 
receiving from the audience. There is a a definite specific feeling that performers receive from the audience. Mm -hmm. And so a performer may walk on stage and especially if I'm backstage for whatever reason and I have a chance to speak with performers who um, have gone on the first half, I may say something like, well, how did it feel? How do you feel? How is the hall? You know, these basic sort of um, questions. And a lot of the times the my friends and colleagues and performers will often say something like, well, the, the audience is very receptive or the opposite. The audience feels very cold and judgmental and it's very uncomfortable to play because you're walking out into a sea of eyes and the, the eyes seem very judging. I think all musicians have experienced this because we go through so many auditions and competitions. Um, so I, I think a panel obviously feels very different than an audience, but there are some times when audiences do feel like panel members more than um, audience <laughs> members. <laughs> um, so uh, all that to say that, you know, when I'm performing, I'm trying to negotiate all of these aspects of how to structure a, a solid performance on a mechanical level and to keep tabs, especially in a chamber ensemble situation, on the other partners involved in the music making. Um, sometimes it can be quite acrobatic. And of course, with chamber ensembles, there's so much call and response and repetition. And so it really does at the end sometimes feel like a conversation and the, the sort of things that might happen when people unintentionally talk over each other or interrupt each other. Um, or don't let somebody finish a sentence accidentally, how to kind of recover from that. Um, and so I'm trying to balance that with what we try to rehearse, which is how do we most essentially and most simply and most elegantly present a powerful series of emotions through this journey of however long the piece may be in duration to really create a strong narrative that holds from the beginning to the end. I love that you say it's like a conversation. Mm -hmm. It's this communication piece. And as you were talking about it, it seems obvious when you're working with an ensemble that that would need to be taking place. But this other uh, manifestation of this idea with the audience, this mm -hmm. conversation that happens with the audience, do you feel like that's equally powerful when you're performing on your own? Yes, for sure. Um, Certainly if, let's say, I'm performing a solo violin recital, so it's just the stage, me, and the violin, and the audience, certainly there are, on a mechanical level, no longer the kind of coordination or syncing issues. Sometimes if I make a mistake, it doesn't seem as consequential in terms of the ensemble because I'm the ensemble. Right. Um, but then there's also, of course, the vulnerability factor, which is... Violin historically was never considered in the way that guitar or piano or harp might be um, an independent instrument that stands well on its own. And I think most of that stems from the fact that violin is still considered very much a melodic instrument, even though it's capable of playing chords. Um, it's, it's a question of, and it's a soprano instrument. So oftentimes it's paired with an instrument that's capable of providing, uh, some bass overtones. So you have a fuller range, um, so that you don't feel like there's just a soprano singing alone. And so 
I haven't had too many occasions um, other than a few pieces to truly play alone. But in those situations, I feel there's two things going on. One is which, um, of course, I'm receptive to the audience's temperature, I guess. But the other is I feel like they're, because I'm completely alone on stage, there's kind of a zeroing in on my on my sound. And oftentimes with music memorized, um, I'm able to to reach a core to the sound that that I find very meditative. There's a quietness that that I achieve uh, simply because it's a single line that um, I feel I'm able to uh, really tap into when I uh, perform as a single instrument. I'm always hoping that in all performances there will be newcomers, um, newcomers either either to my interpretation or newcomers to the venue, newcomers to the composer's music, or even newcomers to a classical music concert. And so if it, I guess in that sense, fails, in that it, it fails to captivate or it it doesn't somehow capture the interest to go a second time or to go again, um, I mean, I think that's part of that's part of introducing or even performing um, for a group of audiences who have different preferences. And uh, I think sometimes I, I welcome the opportunity to feel sometimes the stirrings of the audience or even dropping of the program or coughs um, and sometimes even snores. Um, <laughs> you would I like just, my dogs then. <laughs> sometimes you know I, I may hear a snore and I think okay well maybe maybe I've really lulled them to sleep because the music is just so comforting or maybe I've I've really bored them and it's just uh, you know maybe they'll awaken at the sound of you know an applause or someone coughing but um, I kind of just soak it in and try to incorporate it um I guess, again, kind of going back to the earlier point of knowing that something unexpected is always going to happen, I, I, try, to, I try to use that as sort of real-life feedback. Just to kind of continue this idea of the audience being such a large part of what you do, mm. I'm thinking about some of the kind of unique um, programs that you've created, um, mm. that you've collaborated with others. Uh, I think about Gods Amongst the Trees. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think, makes me relate it to this idea of museums. Yes. And how if you have an innovative exhibition, mm-hmm. on one hand, you're taking this risk because you have something really different. And so you don't know how it will be received. Mm-hmm. But on the other, it's almost as if you have an ability to curate your mm-hmm. own audience in a way mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you can tell who would be interested in exactly. something like this. So I wonder, you know, thinking about Gods Amongst the Trees, which for listeners was a work presented in a vintage radio play format. Mm-hmm that celebrates the unique mythology of the Native Americans Mm -hmm. of the Ozarks. Mm -hmm. What story did you hope to tell through this? And what did you anticipate your audience would think about this? For me, I think I was hoping, well, I think for, for starters, for me, I was painfully ignorant of Native American mythology so it really started from a point of personal curiosity 
And the joy of learning about it was something, honestly, that I was hoping for people who were also perhaps unaware of specific mythologies or Native American mythologies would enjoy discovering. And of course, for those who were already familiar, I was hoping that the radio play format and the newly commissioned work would provide an interesting coupling of mythology that I I assumed, rightly or wrongly so, uh, would not have existed before. I personally grew up loving radio plays, and so that is also a personal joy that I had forgotten about until this this programming idea came into play. And so it was sort of the marriage of curiosity and the hope to share the joy of discovery and the joy of creating something with colleagues and to realize that that joy is something that for me is very pure, uh, meaning it's spontaneous. It's not something that I have expectations or that I evaluate to on quality of on quality of joy. It's just this simple kind of exclamation point for me in the brain that happens. Um, not always anticipated, of course, in terms of how it'll exactly shape shape or sustain itself. But um, it's something that I think once one is hooked on that idea, you're forever chasing maybe that feeling, those exclamation points. You composed and performed the music for our podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember when you and I were discussing the vision for the music and its ability to convey the spirit of the modern woman. Mm-hmm. Would you discuss your process for composing? This sure, piece? sure. Um, I think the first interesting task was the fact that the music was not going to be independent. It was for the podcast, so it had to be about 20 to 30 seconds max. Um, of course, it could have been snipped off if it were longer, but I felt like at least in the beginning, I wanted the statement to be self-contained within 30 seconds. So that was a challenge because most of the music um, I perform is longer than that. And uh, that would just be the beginning of a phrase, which is supposed to create more questions than create a statement, let's say, that's self-enclosed and independent and freestanding. That was my first thought is, how can I create something that's complete in 30 seconds. Then the second thing for me was um, the fact that the music had to represent something other than just itself. It was a podcast to share the life and stories um, of the modern woman. And so I think it was those two words, modern and, w- and woman, or women, that made me think, okay, the music somehow needs to make that connection. It needs to be a believable connection. Music is, of course, universal and abstract enough that it has enough room that even if I were to compose something, I suppose, completely random, perhaps there could be one strain that would be convincing for some people. But I think it had to have that believability and to consider what it means for music to be believable, I think was an interesting thought experiment. Um, I think part of believability for me in in this context meant that it had to conform to expectations of what 
most people, when they say this podcast is about so-and-so, they would not necessarily have preformed conceptions of what it would sound like, but upon hearing the sounds, they would say, yes, that's, that makes sense. If you had the intro to the podcast and I had police sirens <laughs> and, and, and um, screaming babies in the background, um, I, I think it would be very hard to pass that as convincing. <laughs> I'm would... so disappointed that that's <laughs> not what you came up with. <laughs> and and so th- there was that um, that challenge of well, I don't want it to be uh, too far fetched. And then finally, I thought, how does the violin um, sort of fit into all of that? So those were the three things that I was sort of juggling. And by going in deeper, I sort of thought okay, I don't want to make any presumptions about what people might expect. Um, Obviously, the police sirens and the crying babies are sort of an extreme example. But if I were to craft a melody, how believable would it be that it's modern and um, a podcast about women? What does it mean for a uh, piece of melody or a a line of melody to represent men or um, represent a certain time period, because, of course, the violin is an older instrument. Um, the violin that we, that violinists play today, were basically, it came into conception in the 19th century and hasn't really changed since then. So nothing akin to software updates in the last 10 years. We still use old treatises from the 1800s on basically how to hold the violin and teach the violin. So it's it's not a modern instrument, um, and yet it has to be believable as, as a modern mouthpiece in this conception. So I was thinking about exactly how to put all these pieces together, and I guess I would be interested to hear um, from listeners if the beginning arpeggiations, um, the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, mm-hmm. um, if that seems modern. And to me, I, I, I always had this conception, again, whether rightly so or wrongly so, that uh, most people feel that these arpeggiations in a, in a moderate tempo, not too slow and not too fast, it sounds smart and it sounds modern. Um, and I, I think part of it is um, a lot of cinematic scores use that technique that level of being within a chord, but kind of separating it and going up and down, I think that motion um, sounds very dynamic. So after the arpeggiation, it would be nice to contrast that with a more flowing line, which the violin is great at because it has a bow. And so um, it's really great at legato and, and, and long sustained tones. After that, I sort of thought, I really, I really don't know and I think we were talking about this in our previous conversation, I don't know what it means for a melody necessarily to sound like it represents women. And so that was something where I thought, I don't know how specific I should be about that. Um, When you look at old music theory textbooks, um, I would say from about 100 years ago, they actually describe the structure of really old music by way of themes. uh, And it's still described that way, but the terminology has changed. They always used to say the first theme of certain pieces will present a masculine theme, and it's contrasted with the feminine theme um, after the masculine theme is developed. 
And so now the theory textbooks have changed their terminology to simply refer to sequence. So it's not the masculine theme, it's just it's the first theme because that's the first theme that's presented. And the what was considered the feminine theme is um, just the second theme. So now those theory textbooks have been replaced with first and second. Um, and of course, it's always interesting, I'm sure, from a historian's point of view, how that terminology came to play. The only explanation that was given to me at the time was that um, whether composers knew it or not, I mean, theory is always retrospective, so composers aren't necessarily reading the textbooks and then composing to the formula. They, in some way, create the formula, and then the historians and theorists come and kind of codify it. As it happens, you know, so many times with a composer, they may compose 100 pieces this way, and then it somehow becomes this person's formula. So a lot of composers often chose to present a much more militaristic and strong, fast, aggressive theme in the beginning. And then it would be contrasted by something that was much more singing and gentle and soothing. And so... Some theorists, I suppose, from 100 years ago felt that these were the characteristics of the feminine uh, or and or the characteristics of the masculine. So that thought crossed my mind when I was thinking about the, the feminine aspect or the, the woman aspect of the podcast. It also occurred to me that it might be very sexist, obviously, to just simply insert a really gentle, soothing theme and somehow to, in my own mind, think that that was representative of modern women. Um, and so I kind of went back and forth with that idea, um, thinking, well, just because something's soothing doesn't mean, uh, obviously, it has to refer to any biological sex. Um, but I guess for me, at the end, I ended up going with, I think, um, what is a very singing melody because I just, I liked it. <laughs> At the end of the day, after all of that analysis and all of that thinking, um, maybe even overthinking, I just thought, you know, there's, there's a real joy, at least for me, in listening to the violin play a simple, unadorned, self-contained melody. And it's just, as a texture, really nice to contrast that with kind of disjunct, disconnected, arpeggiations. I love that two things that you mentioned during that is one, this idea of intelligence mm -hmm. and the modern woman being intelligent. And I see that, I mean, from talking to women in these podcasts to talking to my middle school girls, mm -hmm. this idea that I think women are embracing being intelligent mm -hmm. and be thinking just constantly thinking and questioning and being curious. Mm -hmm. And so I love that connection. I also love that you said, you know, after all of this thinking, you ended up just going with what you liked, yes, what you enjoyed. <laughs> right. And I think there's something to be said for that and connecting that to the modern woman too, is, you know, the opportunities and the freedoms to figure out, Hey, what do we like? Mm -hmm. And, Oh, we can actually act on so many of these things now. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. before, maybe in the past, that wasn't always a freedom exactly that we had. So I do like that you went kind of full circle from really thinking about this to just saying, hey, this is 
this is what I, I like. I think this fits, this works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to end our conversation with a question about young women. Mm-hmm. We recently had a conversation about female students expressing mm-hmm. the need to see successful female musicians as mm-hmm. they develop their craft. Yes. Why do you think this is so essential for young women in music? I think it's it's so important because, especially with students, even the most independent students who who may already have in their own way their own path that they know, speaking for myself as an example, seeing someone, seeing a strong role model, especially perhaps in a situation where it's not common to see strong women role models, it is so impactful. I wonder if on some level, you know, as musicians and artists, we're always told to imagine the impossible and make it happen, at least in our music and in our craft. I just wonder how feasible that is in real life when the parameters of real life, we're, we're presented with the limitations and the parameters of real life, I would say even subconsciously. And so the presence of someone who embodies their own success, regardless of whether a student may see it and think this is someone whose career I'd like to emulate or someone whose life path is very similar to mine and I hope to be there in 20 years, whatever that specific narrative or that specific feeling um, that is conjured by the meeting of this person or the introduction of this person, it's with that question that it must be formative um, to, to have that. I think it's very inspiring because I think it would be very tempting to say, this person understands my struggle. This person made it work. I think it, I think that means it can work for me too. Or even this person struggled so much, um, I'm not alone. And I think it's that community and that solidarity. And even reading biographies of women who have struggled so much and have passed, there is an empathetic conversation that happens and an energy there, again, whether it's living women or women who have passed, that exists as a, I would say, a pretty consistent thread. Um, it may not always be on the surface and very visible and very intentful, but I think for, for anyone, um, including students, who are broadening their horizons, learning about the world, learning about history, coming into contact with more important figures in their lives, formative figures in their lives. There is that conversation that is happening and that modeling that's happening, that that narrative that's happening, the narrative of how to shape and fully blossom into the life that you that you want. I think that is a lovely place to end our conversation today. And I just want to say, thinking back Um, when I would see you perform in Fayetteville years ago at the Chamber Music Festival, I always thought, I need to know this person. (laughs) I really need to get to know this person. And I'm so glad that, you know, through the events of the universe, that we have been able to get to know each other and share our paths. And I so appreciate you being a part of this podcast through your music and today through your interview. Thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for this opportunity.